I'm Ned Kalange, President and CEO of the Colorado Trust, and I'm really pleased you're here today for the special presentation from Dr. Brian Smedley, a leading national and international expert on health equity. I think most of you know that we're in the process of transitioning our grant-making focus to health equity. We're going to make more information available over the next months, but we wanted you to know that with this focus, our intent is to make our state a place where all Coloradans have a fair and equal opportunity to lead healthy, productive lives, regardless of race, ethnicity, income, or where they live. Among the steps that can help us achieve this goal is sharing information, and that's why we're having sessions such as this one today. We're also providing an, not just the dialogue, but some written materials you'll find uh, in your place and uh, where other folks are listening um, that we've made available. The first piece at your place that you may find is from Dr. Smedley's organization, Place Matters, Ensuring Opportunities for Good Health for All. This provides information about the range of social, economic, and environmental conditions that affect our health. You also have a report from the Trust that outlines the provisions of the Affordable Care Act and the implementation efforts we've seen here in Colorado, all of these as they address health disparities. I'd like to take the opportunity to acknowledge and thank two of the many contributors to the Trust's report who are here with us today Sylvia DeLay, who wrote the brief, and Sherry Walker, who served as editor. These materials and other related materials can be found on our website, coloradotrust.org. I hope that you go there and see all of the information we have around health equity, the Affordable Care Act, and health access and insurance in Colorado. I also want to acknowledge um, that we're live streaming this presentation and so joining you, although virtually, are 400 uh, people across the state who are viewing this at what we call viewing parties in these different settings. So you see Alamosa, Colorado Springs, Durango, Eagle, Fort Collins, Frisco, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Yuma Pueblo, Steamboat, Monta Vista, Montrose, Leadville, Gunnison, and I saved my old hometown, La Junta, for last. Finally, we're using social media today. If you would like to follow the conversation on Twitter, use the hashtag HealthEquityTCT. You may also submit questions via Twitter. We plan to address questions whether you're in the room, whether you're at a remote site, or whether you're tweeting following Dr. Smedley's presentation. So without further ado, I'm very pleased to uh, introduce Dr. Smedley. Vice President and Director of the Health Policy Institute of the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies in Washington, D.C. The Institute explores disparities in health and develops policy recommendations that address health and advance health equity. He's widely renowned for his work as a program, senior program officer in the Division of Health Science Policy at the Institute of Medicine, where he formerly served as study director for two very important IOM reports in the nation's compelling interests assuring diversity in the healthcare workforce and unequal treatment confronting racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare, among other reports on diversity in the health professions and minority health policy research. With that, please help me welcome Dr. Smedley. Thank you so much, Lee. 
Thank you very much, Ned. I really appreciate that kind introduction, and I'm very honored to be here at the Trust. Uh, it's been inspiring to learn about the uh, magnificent work going on here at the Trust, as well as in communities around the state. So uh, my hat is off to all of you. Uh, you, you you're doing remarkable work. Uh, the effort to move toward health equity, I think, is absolutely right. This is what we're seeing in many communities around the country. Uh, and so I thank you for your leadership. I thank you for your vision. Uh, in many respects, what you're doing here is a model for other states. Uh, and I can tell you, having visited states that are not nearly as far along as you are, uh, that they will learn a lot if they come here and visit with you uh, and exchange knowledge. I will uh, talk about health equity and what we can do to advance health equity beyond the landmark Affordable Care Act. And so this is obviously a very important time to have this conversation. Uh, many states are actively uh, implementing the provisions of the law primarily to address health insurance coverage, which is vitally important, as you all know. Uh, but the law also uh, addresses health equity in many respects. So I thank the trust for its very important report. As we think about health equity, it's really about getting to the roots of the persistent inequality between many racial and ethnic populations in the United States. We've, we've really got to understand these root causes because if we don't understand them, it becomes hard to effectively intervene. Let me illustrate this with a brief story that I like to tell. It's about a friend of mine. I'll call him Dan. Dan has a dog who, like other dogs, likes to get into mischief every now and again. One day, Dan's dog brought home what appeared to be a dead animal in its mouth. The animal was dirty and mangled. So Dan gently pried his dog's mouth open, and to his shock and horror, he realized it was his neighbor's favorite pet rabbit, Fluffy. So in a moment of panic, Dan shampooed the rabbit's fur, blow-dried it, made it look nice. And the next day, when his neighbor wasn't home, he snuck over there and put the rabbit back in its cage. So the very next day, Dan's talking to his neighbor, and the neighbor said, I don't know if you knew, but my rabbit, Fluffy, died. Dan pretends like he's shocked, and he says, you're kidding, how did it happen? The neighbor says, well, he died of natural causes, but the crazy thing is, some nut dug him up out of his grave, cleaned him off, and put him back in his cage. <laughs> so unless we understand these root causes, we're going to be barking up the wrong tree, literally. So let's explore some of the root causes of these racial and ethnic health inequities, which, as all of you know, are deep and persistent. They, they span across the life cycle, beginning at birth with higher rates of infant mortality, particularly among American Indians and, and African Americans, all the way through childhood and adolescent diseases, and you can name any number of chronic diseases from A to Z, whether you're talking about asthma or diabetes uh, or, or other uh, chronic diseases, we see higher rates in many communities of color, uh, all the way through the end of the life cycle with premature mortality, shortened lifespans in many communities of color. So the question becomes, why do these uh, disparities exist? And, and more importantly, how do they affect all of us? If there's nothing else I leave you with this morning, I hope it's, it's the notion that disparities are not just a concern for communities of color. They affect all of us ultimately. And here's one example of how they affect us. A couple of years ago, uh, my organization, the Joint Center, did some research to try to quantify the economic costs associated with health inequalities. In other words, if we allow some population groups to be sicker, less able to participate in the workforce, and to die prematurely, what does that mean for our economy? What does that mean for all of us who pay into a health insurance premium? So we attempted to quantify the direct medical costs associated with health inequalities. In other words, how much more are we spending 
on patient care because of that higher burden of disease and disability uh, in communities that, that suffer from that higher burden, but also there are indirect costs associated with health inequalities. When people are too sick to work, we lose wages, we lose productivity. We're not able to compete uh, internationally as, as we might be able to if our populations were healthier. And then there are costs associated with premature death. When a breadwinner dies before their productive years are over, we lose tax revenue, for example, at local, state, and federal levels. So all of these kinds of direct and indirect costs can, have, can shape our overall economy and how well we're, we're recovering from the economic downturn. What we found was, was quite striking. In the four years between 2003 and 2006, over 30% of the medical costs incurred by African Americans, Latinos, and Asian Americans were excess costs due to health inequalities. In other words, that higher burden of diabetes, asthma, cardiovascular disease, and the extra amount that it costs to take care of these populations costs all of us. All of us who pay into a health insurance premium are, of course, helping to pay for some of these costs. Eliminating these health inequalities would have uh, reduced medical care expenditures by nearly $230 billion in that four-year period. So when we think about the need to contain health care costs, which, as all of you know, are rising rapidly, and we're trying to make sure that, that we bend the so-called health care cost curve, clearly eliminating racial and ethnic health inequities is an important part of a comprehensive strategy to begin to reduce those costs so that we're not spending 17, 18% of our GDP on health care. But then when we add in the indirect costs associated with health inequalities, lost wages and productivity, lost state, local, federal tax revenue, uh, another trillion dollars is added to that figure so that we estimated uh, that, uh, that again in that four-year period between 03 and 06 that uh, the combined cost of health inequalities was $1.24 trillion. Not an insignificant sum when we're trying to recover from this economic downturn. And of course, these costs were before the downturn. It's quite likely that in the most recent four years, these costs might be quite higher, uh, given the fact that the economic downturn is likely to widen racial and ethnic health gaps. So uh, I really want to stress this point that health inequalities concern all of us. They concern our businesses. They concern our governments. Uh, they concern all of us who are uh, interested in a vital and healthy population uh, so that we can all grow and, and thrive. We also have looked at the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act for its equity elements. Uh, like the trust, we find many, many provisions that directly and indirectly uh, address health equity and health disparities, uh, primarily, of course, through its coverage expansions. And I, I won't go through all of this. I know many of you are familiar with this. Uh, for those states that accept the Medicaid expansion, you can expect uh, that their populations will be healthier. We know from research that states that expand their Medicaid program have lower mortality rates and better uh, satisfaction with care and better self-reported health than comparable states that do not expand their Medicaid program. So uh, I congratulate you all for the important steps that you've taken uh, to expand the Medicaid program. Others in some uh, states, some 17, 18 states, perhaps may not be as lucky. Uh, but we think that the, the research is clear that there are economic benefits to those states that expand their Medicaid programs because not only will they have a healthier population, but the economic activity associated with the Medicaid expansion is likely to increase state tax revenues, and in some cases, more so than what states will pay to match the federal contribution to the Medicaid expansion. 
Uh, of course, the other efforts to provide uh, incentives for businesses and for individuals to purchase insurance are important particularly for small businesses, because disproportionately people of color work in small businesses with fewer than 25 employees. Uh, and so to the extent that, that small employers can offer uh, affordable insurance coverage through the ACA, this is going to help more people of color to get a source of insurance coverage. Of course, it's true that an insurance card is not enough to guarantee access to high quality care. And this is particularly true in communities of color many of whom are medically underserved communities, areas that lack access to primary care, uh, oral health care, behavioral health care. All of these services are important, but they tend to be concentrated in more advantaged communities. That's because health care, of course, is a market commodity in our system. So providers are going to locate where they can earn a good living. So the Affordable Care Act uh, improves access to care by expanding access to, to uh, community health centers, uh, expanding oral and behavioral health services in, in CHCs, uh, expanding the National Health Service Corps, vitally important to help to ensure that doctors and dentists and others uh, have incentives to work in underserved communities. And of course, it increases uh, reimbursement uh, for Medicaid services to match that of the Medicare program so that more providers will have an incentive to accept patients with Medicaid. There are other provisions that are vitally important, again, for racial and ethnic health equity and for closing health disparities. The, the data collection and reporting requirements under the ACA for the first time require the federal government to collect consistent data so that we understand when and under what circumstances we see disparities in access to care, disparities in the quality of, of care that's provided, uh, and this will be also important in our effort to address social determinants of health. There are other important programs. The uh, ACA reauthorizes the Title VII and VIII health professions programs, which have been proven effective to improve the diversity and distribution of our providers across the country, authorizing cultural competence education, health disparities research, and also one of the most important provisions, in my view, is establishing the Prevention and Public Health Fund, which for the first time creates a dedicated fund for uh, addressing community-based health health promotion efforts. Uh, again, these are some of the most important things that we can do if we're serious about bending the cost curve and helping our populations be healthier in the first place. But of course, more must be done. Uh, we can't stop with the ACA. Uh, the health equity movement is a movement that requires us to be much more holistic and comprehensive in our thinking, and in fact, looking far outside of health care and outside of public health. We've got to be thinking about how health is formed through our policies in housing, education, transportation, and the like. And I'm going to provide some examples here shortly. But let me focus first on what many of us believe is the root cause of racial and ethnic health inequities, and that is residential segregation. Those of you that attended the talk uh, by Dr. David Williams here recently uh, know that he is one of the pioneers in research on the relationship between residential segregation and racial and ethnic health disparities. For most of us, we think about segregation in the United States, and we, we, we realize that we've come a long way. There are no longer Jim Crow laws on the books uh, preventing people of color from owning a home in any community where they can afford a home. There are no longer racial covenants or covenants on the basis of religion or uh, other uh, uh, status that prevent people from purchasing a home in a, in a community that they want to purchase a home in. But unfortunately, segregation remains a persistent part of the United States and our landscape. The reality is that for many people of color, 
we see differences in where people live, learn, work, and play. And these differences are often accompanied by differences in the characteristics of neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, in ways that powerfully shape health. Let me provide an example of where we are today in terms of our uh, ability to desegregate American communities. This is a slide showing the dissimilarity index. This is a measure used by sociologists and demographers of the degree of separation between two groups. Uh, what it says roughly is that it is the percentage of a population that would need to move within a defined geographic space to create complete integration between two groups. So in South Africa in 1991, prior to the dismantling of apartheid, South Africa had a very high dissimilarity index, and that's that first bar on the left. What it shows is that 90% of black and white South Africans would need to move to create complete integration in South Africa at that time. Now, of course, that was the point of the, of the apartheid law, that they wanted to keep racial groups separate and unequal. Obviously, South Africa has dismantled apartheid, but several major U.S. cities remain as segregated or almost as segregated as, as South Africa was in 1991. Looking across this slide, starting with Detroit, which is the second from, uh, bar from the left, uh, in, in uh, tw uh, 2010, Detroit had a dissimilarity index of 85, meaning that 85% of black and white Detroiters would need to move to create integration within that city. Detroit is my hometown, so I'm not trying to pick on Detroit, but it is one of the most segregated cities in the United States as is Milwaukee, uh, New York, Chicago, Newark. All of these cities had dissimilarity indices of 80 or higher, meaning that four out of every five black and white residents of these cities would need to move to create complete integration within those cities. So we still have a long way to go to desegregate our communities uh, and to equalize opportunities for good health based on the characteristics of these different neighborhoods. What's the problem with residential segregation? We know that segregation concentrates poverty, it excludes and isolates people of color from mainstream resources needed for success. So when we're thinking about the quality of, of a child's school, when we're thinking about the quality of housing, when we're talking about access to capital in the neighborhood to start a business, or even access to good jobs in the neighborhood, these are often powerfully shaped by patterns of segregation and geography. We know that channeling non-whites in neighborhoods with poorer public schools fewer employment opportunities, and smaller returns on real estate guarantees that their socioeconomic mobility is constrained. This last point, smaller returns on real estate, is a very, very significant issue for those of us working in the health equity space. Many of you know that in the last few years, as a result of the, the home lending crisis, that black and Latino families lost historic levels of wealth. We know that uh, 10 years ago, the wealth differential between whites and blacks was about 10 to 1. For every dollar of African-American wealth, whites had about $10 of wealth. For every uh, dollar of Latino wealth, whites had about $10 of wealth. That was about 10 years ago. Today, that wealth gap has grown in large part because of the home foreclosure crisis. Communities of color were disproportionately preyed upon by lenders uh, with very risky home loan products, subprime loans uh, that ballooned as, in, uh, as, uh, uh, as rates went up. And what happened, many families lost their home. And of course, your home is the most significant source of family wealth. Today, for every nickel of African-American wealth, there is a dollar of white wealth. In other words, that ratio is now 20 to 1 for white wealth relative to black wealth. And for every six cents of Latino wealth, 
whites have a dollar of wealth. So these wealth gaps have grown and they have significant implications for health equity because of the important relationship between socioeconomic status, in other words, income and wealth, and health. The more income, the more education, the more wealth you have, the healthier you are. And this is one of the biggest drivers of racial and ethnic health inequity. So we see uh, that uh, smaller returns on real estate are a big reason why people of color have not amassed the wealth uh, that white families have had. Because in communities of color, highly segregated communities, we see that real estate uh, uh, increases at far lower rates. Uh, the value of those homes will, uh, will increase at lower rates than a comparable home in a predominantly white community. We know that these communities are, are more likely than whiter and wealthier communities to have food deserts, to lack geographic access to fresh fruits and vegetables, nutritious food products. In contrast, many of these neighborhoods are overrun with harmful products, vendors selling fast food, convenience stores, carryout stores, often selling highly processed products with high uh, sodium content, high in fat, high in sugar. And we have disproportionate alcohol and tobacco advertising in many of these communities. There are uh, uh, huge differences in terms of environmental exposures. The whole environmental justice movement has been focused on the fact that many polluting industries are cited in or near communities of color, disproportionately uh, shaping the quality of the air, the soil, and the water that these residents are exposed to. And in many of these communities, we see poor access to parks, green space, recreational facilities where people can enjoy active lifestyles. You see what the picture is here. We've done a very good job in this country of telling people to eat right, exercise, and go to the doctor. But it is harder to do all of those things in highly segregated communities of color to no fault of the individuals that live in those communities. So if you look at a place like Detroit, and again, I don't want to pick on my hometown, but I'm going to do it anyway. Detroit, for many years, had no major grocery stores or supermarkets within the city limits. Now there are about four or five. But if you want to eat healthy in Detroit, it is very, very difficult. You have an abundance of fast food stores, carryout stores, but very few places selling fresh fruits and vegetables. And if you don't have reliable personal transportation, it's going to be even more difficult for you to access those healthy foods because it is the motor city. There's not much in the way of a public transportation infrastructure. These are among the structures and systems that pose barriers to the opportunity for good health for people of color in these highly segregated communities. Of course, the real issue here is poverty concentration. Highly segregated communities tend to have a high concentration of people below the poverty line. We've been following trends in poverty concentration, uh, trying to assess whether we've made any progress as a nation in deconcentrating poverty in our communities. We released this report in 2010 called The Lost Decade, Neighborhood Poverty and the Urban Crisis of the 2000s. You can find this on our website. What we found was, was very striking that there are now a record number of people living in so-called medium poverty neighborhoods where between 20 and 30% of the population is below the poverty line. Now some nearly 30 million people in the US living in medium poverty neighborhoods and 22 million people living in high poverty neighborhoods where over 30% of the residents of these communities are living below the poverty line. And people living in extreme poverty, again, we now have a record number. Extreme poverty neighborhoods are those with 40% or more of the population living below the poverty line. These are neighborhoods that are deeply distressed. 
very few opportunities for jobs, very few stores, vendors selling healthy food products, often accompanied by high levels of crime and violence, and the stress associated with these conditions confers even greater risk for poor health. We now have about nine million people living in neighborhoods with extreme poverty across the United States. People of color, African Americans, Latinos, and American Indians are over-concentrated in high poverty tracts relative to their representation in the population. Here we're looking at the top 330 metropolitan statistical areas in the country, and in those communities, about 90% of white Americans live in neighborhoods with low to moderate levels of poverty concentration, that is between zero and 20% poverty concentration. In contrast, uh, about a uh, about 55% uh, uh, of African Americans live in those neighborhoods, whereas about a third live in neighborhoods with a moderate level of poverty concentration, and about 25% live in neighborhoods with, uh, with high poverty concentration, that is over 30% poverty concentration. And the same is true for Asian Americans, American Indians, and Latinos. Again, much more likely to live in neighborhoods with high levels of poverty concentration relative to their representation in the population. We, uh, we would expect these differences, right, because of differences in income, education, wealth. But even if you control for socioeconomic differences, just by looking at families below the poverty line, again, you see a striking dynamic. These are all individuals living below the poverty line, but among poor white families, nearly 70% live in neighborhoods with low to moderate poverty concentration whereas only about a third of poor African Americans and about 40% of poor Latinos live in neighborhoods with a low level of poverty concentration. They are disproportionately clustered in medium and high poverty tracts. Over 40% of poor African Americans, for example, are in high poverty tracts where three out of 10 residents or more are below the poverty line. This is, uh, a, boy, I said I wouldn't pick on Detroit, but here I go again. I assume none of you are from Detroit because I don't hear any hissing. Um, <laughs> if we look at specific cities, we see this, this pattern even in an even more dramatic fashion. These, this slide represents the level of poverty concentration for African-American, Latino, white, and Asian Pacific Islander children in the metro Detroit area. What we see is that a little less than 40% of African-American kids live in neighborhoods with a low level of poverty concentration. This is the first set of bars on the left. These are neighborhoods with between zero and 20% poverty concentration. About 60% of Latino kids in Metro Detroit live in these neighborhoods with low levels of poverty concentration. And about 95% of white children in Metro Detroit live in these neighborhoods. These are the very neighborhoods that you want your kids to grow up in. On average, they are safer neighborhoods. On average, they have better schools, better nutritional resources, better access to parks and recreational facilities. So again, we might ask ourselves, what if you control for differences in income, education, wealth? Would you still see the same pattern? Well, let's just look at poor children. These are children in families below the poverty line. So when we look at poor African-American kids, uh, about 20%, about one in five live in neighborhoods with a low level of poverty concentration. About a third of poor Latino kids live in these neighborhoods with low levels of poverty concentration. In contrast, 75% of poor white children live in the best neighborhoods. This is why we should never conf conflate race and class. Both are operative here, right? We don't want any kid to, gr to grow up in poverty. It poses risks to human health and development. 
But kids of color are disproportionately more likely to grow up in so-called double jeopardy. Not only are they more likely to be in families below the poverty line, they are also more likely to be in neighborhoods with concentrated poverty and all the problems associated with this. So if we want our kids to be able to rise up out of poverty, we can't send them to failing schools, have them grow up in neighborhoods with high levels of crime and violence, or to be exposed to environmental degradation, lead, and other kinds of, of poisons and health risks. But yet, this is the problem that we're faced with. So we have to address both poverty generally, as well as the racialization of poverty, the fact that people of color tend to be concentrated in conditions of, of poverty. So what do, we, what do we do about these problems? The evidence suggests that there is much that we can do. It requires a focus on prevention, particularly on the conditions in which people live, work, study, and play. It requires multiple strategies across an array of sectors. It's not just the responsibility of health care or public health, but we've got to look to other sectors, and even, as I will argue, outside of government. Government alone can't solve these problems. And we need a sustained investment and a long-term policy agenda. This is where we fall short, frankly, here in the United States, because our elected officials are looking two years down the road or four years down the road at the next election cycle. They know that voters want quick results. Well, you're not going to change these conditions in two or four years. It took generations to create the conditions that these kids are living in now. So we need a sustained investment and a long-term vision and a commitment from many different sectors, not just government, but also our business leaders, our faith leaders, our grassroots and community-based organizations, because it'll take all of us to begin to solve these problems. There are two general categories of strategies that we advocate. One are place-based strategies, and we see uh, great enthusiasm for these kinds of investments around the country. So there are many governments, health foundations, federal agencies, including the CDC, that are promoting place-based investments, and I'm going to talk more about these shortly. But essentially, these are strategies to deconcentrate health risks that we see in communities of color, but also to uh, increase geographic access to health-enhancing resources, like grocery stores. But there's a second bucket of activity, people-based investments investing in early childhood education, and increasing housing mobility options as a way to deconcentrate poverty. This is where I want to challenge all of us. You might think this is not your responsibility. No, I work in health. How can I, what's, I, I can't deal with poverty concentration. Well, yes, you can. And there are specific ways that we can break silos to begin to put this very issue into the conversation so that we squarely tackle the root cause of poverty concentration. Let's start with place-based investments, and many of you are familiar with these kinds of strategies. They're, they're proliferating, uh, proliferating around the country, and it's very exciting to see. Many communities are, are employing strategies to improve food and nutrition options through incentives for farmers markets and grocery stores, and regulation of, of vendors selling harmful products like, like fast food and liquor stores. So on the incentive side, many of you are familiar with the uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's Fresh Food Financing Initiative, which is also being replicated around the country. There's now a federal fresh food uh, financing initiative. The idea is let's provide incentives, whether it's in the form of tax breaks or other kinds of financial incentives, to grocers to come into food deserts, set up shop. Uh, many grocers in Pennsylvania, where this has been underway for many years now, have found that they've achieved a so-called triple bottom line. Not only do they increase access to healthy foods in these communities, but they're also a good source of jobs and they turn a profit. Very important. 
Regulation of fast food and liquor stores. Many jurisdictions around the country are saying, we're not going to tolerate the concentration of vendors selling unhealthy products in some of our most vulnerable communities. So the County Council of Los Angeles, for example, a few years ago, imposed a moratorium on the establishment of new fast food restaurants in South Central LA, which is a, a community that's a lot like Detroit. Overrun with fast food, convenience stores, vendors selling high fat, high sugar, uh, high sodium products, uh, by limiting the siting of new restaurants and other vendors selling uh, poor quality foods, we can also simultaneously explore incentives to bring in vendors selling more healthful products. And communities around the country are, are using tools, policy tools like health impact assessments to understand the potential health consequences of decisions made in sectors uh, across a range of areas including housing, transportation, labor, education policies, as I hope you've seen, all of these different sectors, there are decisions being made every day that have health consequences, and too often policymakers are not aware uh, of what those policy decisions mean. We need to advance health and equity in all policies to ensure that kids have an equitable opportunity for good health. We can also improve the physical environment of communities, improving, for example, air quality. And, and the example that I find most inspiring is the work of a group of advocates uh, in New York City who noticed a high concentration of childhood asthma in certain parts of, of Harlem and, and uh, the Upper uh, West Side. When they mapped the incidence of childhood asthma, they found that these cases were clustering around bus depots operated by the city. So when bus drivers would come in the morning to warm up their buses, they'd let them idle, and all the diesel exhaust would circulate around those communities, increasing risk for asthma and other respiratory problems for these kids. These advocates were, were able to get the city to, to relocate these bus depots and to employ greener practices so that they were not concentrating diesel exhaust in communities that were already vulnerable. Other communities are expanding the availability of open space, encouraging exercise and pedestrian-friendly communities. You know a lot about this here in Colorado. You're, you're a leader in this work. And addressing environmental health impacts, cleaning up brownfields, for example. There was a lot of money in the stimulus legislation in, in 09 to help clean up brownfields, and it's, it's had an important, very positive impact on improving uh, land that previously was unusable because of polluting industry uh, having been cited in some of these areas, now some of these communities can enjoy land for redevelopment, for business, for housing, and other kinds of, of strategies. Now I want to talk about people-based investments, and in particular, housing mobility. Housing mobility should be part of our lexicon. If you are working in the health equity space, uh, we need to start talking about housing mobility as a way to deconcentrate poverty. Many of you are aware of the recent federal experiment called Moving to Opportunity, a longitudinal study, a randomized controlled trial where families that sought housing assistance were randomly assigned to an experimental or control group. The control group received the standard housing assistance, Section 8 vouchers, and were uh, told to go find rental housing where uh, landlords would accept uh, those vouchers. Often those families did not move out of neighborhoods with concentrated poverty. In fact, they often stayed in neighborhoods. Uh, they might have moved, but they didn't move out of concentrated poverty. In the experimental condition, families were given assistance to move to neighborhoods with lower levels of poverty concentration and better opportunity structures. What they found in follow-up uh, to this study uh, was a little bit mixed, but lots of indications of positive uh, outcomes from a public health standpoint. So away from concentrated poverty, many of these families reported less stress, better mental health, 
less risky sexual behavior and, and delinquency, particularly among adolescent girls. Uh, they benefited more from adolescent boys, and the suggestion was that many of these boys did not leave behind their peer groups in the old neighborhood. But a more recent study in the New England Journal of Medicine published last year found that those families that moved out of neighborhoods with concentrated poverty had lower levels of severe obesity and diabetes on 15-year follow-up. The clearest evidence that these kinds of housing mobility strategies can also be a public health strategy, not to mention the positive outcomes for these kids in terms of education, life opportunities, generally, et cetera. Now I just want to say a word about an initiative that we operate out of the Joint Center called Place Matters, and I'm going to conclude with this. Place Matters uh, has been going on since 2006. It is an effort that's been funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Our objectives are to build the capacity of local leaders to address social, economic, and environmental conditions in neighborhoods that shape health. We engage these communities to, to build their collective capacity. It's about building power and voice so that they can go to elected officials with evidence and data and say, here's where the problems are, and here are the policy solutions that we think can solve these problems. This is a national learning community of practice to accelerate applications of successful strategies to move as far upstream as we can, often more upstream than the local health departments in these communities. We're, we're working in 24 jurisdictions around the country. Uh, many of these are urban communities uh, that suffer from uh, high levels of poverty concentration, uh, population loss, job loss, places like Detroit, like Cleveland, uh, Baltimore, communities that are deeply segregated uh, and are, uh, that have the urban ills that you might associate with that, high crime, uh, abandoned homes, things like that. But we're also working in rural communities, such as the rural Mississippi Delta. We've got two teams in the Mississippi Delta that are, again, are concerned with poverty concentration and the deeply entrenched poverty in the Mississippi Delta, as well as in the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, in the San Joaquin Valley, as many of you know, there are many unincorporated communities, uh, primarily uh, communities where uh, migrant farm workers are, are living. Uh, in many of these communities, they don't have safe drinking water, may not have electricity or sewer services, literally living in third world conditions right in our midst. But local jurisdictions won't annex these communities because they don't want to have to extend the services that are necessary to keep these communities healthy and safe and vibrant. Our model is an intersection of health, place, and equity, where we acknowledge that there are many different characteristics of neighborhoods and communities and schools and workplaces. So uh, things like access to high-quality healthcare facilities, access to high-quality schools and childcare, the level of safety or violence in a community, the kinds of transportation policies and traffic patterns in those neighborhoods, work environments, the availability of parks or open space, the quality of housing and access to healthy foods, these are but some of the kinds of neighborhood characteristics that shape health. So certainly, they shape the environment, uh, and there is a strong intersection with health. Our effort is to promote equity in all policies to promote optimal health for residents growing up in these communities. Our progress to date, we think, is significant. All of our teams have identified key social determinants of health, whether their concerns are around food justice issues or environmental justice issues or issues like uh, uh, stress arising from crime and violence. We're building multi-sector alliances, and this is so key to this work. 
It's not just public health at the table. It's not just health care systems at the table, but local leaders at the grassroots and community-based level, faith leaders, business leaders, many other sectors that are critically important to come together and find common strategies. They're engaging with policymakers uh, and other key stakeholders, and, and many of their accomplishments are summarized in the publication that you have before you. So thank you to the Trust for reproducing that. And we're evaluating our practices. The point here is to understand what's working and what's not. Let's lift up what works so that other communities can employ similar models. This is some of the research that we've done uh, through Place Matters, and I have to thank the National Institute on Minority Health and Health Disparities of NIH for supporting this research. In almost all of our Place Matters communities, we've, we've mapped geographically the distribution of health. What do I mean by that? You're looking at a map of life expectancy in Bernalillo County, which is, of course, Albuquerque. Uh, and what we've done here is to map life expectancy by different census tracts in the county. The deeper red are the census tracts with the lowest life expectancy. And in fact, one census tract in Bernalillo County has a life expectancy of about 66. It's almost like a third world country. The highest life expectancy is represented by the yellow shaded areas. And in one census tract in Bernalillo County, life expectancy was as high as 94. This represents a 28-year difference in life expectancy across these census tracts, and some of these communities are just a few miles apart. Similarly, in, in New Orleans, we found a similar pattern. Here we're mapping life expectancy by zip code. What we find here is that the deepest red area is a zip code with the lowest life expectancy. It, right there in Central City, you can expect to live to be about 55. It's probably the lowest life expectancy zip code in the country. Not far from there, if you go to Lakeshore, Lake Vista, a few miles north, the area in, in pale yellow, life expectancy is about 80. So here there's a 25-year difference in life expectancy, and it's, these neighborhoods are just a freeway ride apart. My point here is that these health differences are not naturally occurring. There's no natural phenomenon that explains these differences. Rather, this is the geography of opportunity. It is a pattern that is clear and consistent, where you see disinvested, neighborhoods, high levels of poverty concentration, neglect in terms of opportunity structures like schools and jobs, where you see all of these problems coming together, one barrier after another, you're going to see that deep red, that poor life expectancy. In contrast, neighborhoods with better opportunity structures do much better for, from a health standpoint. We often find that these maps help to explain the geographic distribution of health, the role of place, but they also explain race unfortunately, because of persistent patterns of residential segregation. We can undo these challenges, and I want to leave you with a quote that I like, uh, which I think nicely summarizes what our responsibilities are. This is a quote from the World Health Organization in 2008, in their very important report on the social determinants of health. They wrote that inequities in health and avoidable health inequalities arise because of the circumstances in which people grow, live, work, and age, and the systems put in place to deal with illness. The conditions in which people live and die are in turn shaped by political, social, and economic forces. In other words, the inequities that we see, again, are not naturally occurring. They're the result of policies and practices and systems that we have put into place, not intentionally to harm some communities or to disadvantage some communities, but we too often accept the kinds of patterns of segregation and poverty concentration that we see in almost every community around the country, but we don't have to accept it. We can undo these policies and practices <clears throat> and promote good health for every child living in these neighborhoods. Thank you very much for the work that you do, and I look forward to your comments and questions.
Thank you, Dr. Smidley. That was outstanding. Um, what, we're, what we're hoping for now is um, a dialogue with individuals in the room, individuals in rooms across the state, and others that might be joining us uh, on Twitter. I, I thought uh, for a moment that I might take the first question, and then I decided, no, I won't do that. Uh, and so we'll start right here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Rudy Gonzalez. I'm with Servicios de la Razan. We came with some of our staff here, and we're doing a lot of work in advocacy and health disparities in healthcare. Uh, my question is, uh, uh, there are a lot of uh, elements to that discussion. Have you talked about or do you, have you considered the exorbitant cost of hospitalization, uh, primary care, uh, the pay of doctors, the, you know, these high costs, uh, uh, just like medical devices that sometimes cost a few hundred to manufacture, cost thousands, if not tens of thousands, to pay for. Uh, what, is your, what is your answer to that? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, the, the question is about uh, some of the expenses in the U.S. healthcare system, which you correctly noted uh, are, in some ways, an artifact of innovation. You know, we have incredible uh, innovation and technology in this country. It has benefited um, some, but not all. My fear sometimes when we see innovation is that it's going to actually widen health inequities uh, that we see. We see the, the rise of concierge care. You talked about the, uh, the costs uh, of pay for physicians and others. Uh, concierge care is uh, providing uh, executive level health care services, again, for those who can afford it. And it's often uh, outside of the purview of health insurance. So uh, these kinds of inequities within our healthcare system not only make our system more costly, but they exacerbate health inequities. Now, I'm not against innovation and technology. That is absolutely wonderful. Hopefully, as more people get insurance coverage uh, through the ACA and other mechanisms, uh, hopefully as we uh, expand the pool of those who are insured, that kind of innovation will become more widely available for folk who need it. But what we see currently is that there's a tremendous inequity in what services are available to whom. Sadly, uh, you know, if you go to some communities of color, uh, with high levels of poverty concentration, there is tremendous growth in the healthcare sector around things like kidney dialysis. Uh, and so, again, this adds to our cost when we could have prevented many of these illnesses by working upstream to improve neighborhood conditions for health. Uh, and so, it, these are things that we worry about. We've, we've not quantified the contribution of innovation and uh, other kinds of expensive healthcare uh, delivery tools and mechanisms to the, the broader picture of inequities. But as a site, the study I cited earlier suggests, uh, you know, we, there's a heavy burden to be paid for allowing these inequities to persist. And it's definitely, we, we don't solve these problems solely by innovation. Uh, we, we've got to be, you know, we've got to come up from the bench, stop looking through the microscope, turn that microscope around, and look at society. Next question. Dr. Smedley, we have a question here from someone in our streaming audience. And the question is, if everyone moves from the areas of concentrated poverty, doesn't that create blight? What about those left behind? Yeah, excellent question. So um, thank you for raising that, because I forgot to mention that housing mobility, as we talk about it, uh, is both the ability for folk who want to move out of distressed communities into higher opportunity neighborhoods, as well as providing opportunities for people who want to stay in communities. Uh, and this is particularly important 
uh, when we make place-based investments. So one of the unintended, unintended consequences sometimes of place-based investments is that we can make a neighborhood nice and attractive, but what happens? Rents go up, people who've been living there sometimes for generations are displaced. So housing mobility should include the ability for families to stay where they are. We know that many, many families want to stay in their community. They enjoy the social capital that they've built up there, the, the social ties and relationships. So that housing mobility has to include both staying in place and moving if you want to. I suspect that fewer people will want to move uh, when their neighborhood is improving, uh, but we simply can't have folk displaced. So the questioner is quite right. Uh, we've got to be worried about unintended consequences, and one, one unintended consequence of the housing mobility piece that involves moving out uh, is that people can lose their social connections uh, and social ties that are often so important as a, social, as a source of social support. Uh, so both are necessary. If we're going to do place-based investments, we've also got to do housing mobility at the same time, and that mobility means both staying in place or moving if you choose to. Dr. Baca. Is there a dichotomy between talking about keeping people in place, and we know, we've seen the displacement with um, gentrification of areas that were principally minority, between that and talking about increase in health centers? You know, if we're talking about moving people into other areas and at the same time investing in health centers, which would be in a concentrated area. How do you put those two together? Yeah, you're, you're right. There, there, it, it is uh, a contradiction on its face. If we're putting community health centers in neighborhoods that lack access to primary care, oral health services, behavioral health services, uh, but if, at the same time, if we're trying to transform those communities, what does that mean for the CHC, whose mission is in particular to serve those populations? Well, sadly, we know that there's still going to be a demand. Uh, no matter how effective we are at housing mobility, there's still going to be a demand for CHC services because there's still going to be a lot of folk uh, who are below the poverty line who may not have insurance uh, if they qualify for it. Or in some cases, you have folk uh, who don't qualify for insurance because of the loopholes in the ACA. So I think we're still going to need those CHCs. And also, remember that CHCs are part of neighborhood revitalization. For, you know, for those neighborhoods that, that lack access to primary care, uh, oral health care, um, you know, uh, it's not going to be attractive to move into a community where geographic access to health care is hard to, to attain. So those CHCs, I, I view as part of our place-based investments. Uh, they're going to be vitally important and needed uh, regardless of where poor people end up. Uh, but I suspect there's still going to be a high demand. Uh, you look at the large number of people living in this country who will not qualify for the insurance uh, uh, coverage under the ACA, including folk who are here without documentation. They're, they're going to need a place to get health care. And so CHCs, of course, have done such an incredible job of providing high-quality care, often under very difficult circumstances. So I think that those CHCs are going to be attractive not only to folk that have been using those services for many years, but also for newcomers to a community that's struggling to get providers into their, into their neighborhoods. Uh, thank you for that question. Back here. Uh, hi, I'm Gabe Fiddleman. I work with Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment and also University of Colorado doing community-based participatory research. 
My question is specifically around collaboration and specifically in place, place matters communities. Um, I think a lot of these causes are really, they hit home and we see the root causes and we want to work on the social determinants of health. But what strategies do you have to really align all these different organizations, all these different people that are working on different initiatives, maybe different strategies, coming from different perspectives, and in making sure that the community voice is really heard? So your question is, what are the incentives for collaboration, and how do we ensure community voice is heard? More, what strategies have you found effective in aligning all these different stakeholders and people, and, and actually kind of lowering the time it takes to get everybody on board with the projects? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you're so right. Uh, collaboration is not easy work. It's easy, it's easy for me to stay here, stand here and say, you all should collaborate. Uh, harder to do in practice, and in, in Place Matters, our model uh, is one where we begin by recruiting leaders who are working in different sectors around the country. So we're very intentional about reaching out to public health, but also to grassroots and community-based organizations, faith leaders, business leaders, academics. Almost all of our teams have people from these different sectors on the team. So you have that representation. Their charge is then to go out and recruit their peers and colleagues into the effort. Where are the incentives? Increasingly, we're seeing that federal funding streams are supporting this kind of multi-sector collaboration to break down silos. And many private uh, health foundations are also doing this kind of uh, grant making as well to reduce silos. But uh, importantly, community voice has to guide the process. So you're so right to raise this. In, in our process, as we recruit teams, we're constantly looking for leaders who will reflect community voice so that they're on the teams. But then these Place Matters teams also have to do the kind of community outreach and engagement that's necessary for communities to define the agenda. Again, it's not easy work and it's often hard to do. There are often uh, disagreements about who represents community, uh, who speaks for community, and what does the community truly want? So um, that is an ongoing process. We feel that the agenda that the community sets is never etched in stone, uh, but we do try to get uh, to make sure that there's consensus, whether it's around uh, the team working on a, on a uh, issue of food justice or environmental justice, uh, or maybe it's the, the, some of our teams are actually working on issues like the cradle to prison pipeline, the fact that some of our K-12 uh, uh, schools have such draconian disciplinary policies uh, that they're almost encouraging kids to drop out. What happens when kids drop out? Not only are they at risk uh, in terms of their own socioeconomic mobility and advancement, uh, but the likelihood that they end up in a juvenile justice or criminal justice system is high, which again poses a tremendous cost, not only for the community, but society at large. So um, all of those elements are there trying to uh, uh, foster and, and create the conditions for multi-sector collaboration, trying to ensure that community voice guides the work and, and sets the agenda, uh, and also to help all sectors be clear that you do have a stake in this. There are incentives if we succeed. If we succeed, the business community uh, has a tremendous opportunity to recruit new talent uh, for their workforce. And increasingly, their talent pool is coming from communities of color, given demographic change, right? 40% of kids under 17 are, are kids of color. By 2042, one out of every two residents in the US will be a person of color. So businesses, I think, increasingly get it, that we've got to solve these inequities so that they'll have a healthy, well-trained, productive workforce. So, We've got to make sure that those incentives are there for them as well. Thank you for that question. Courtney, you have another question from? Yes, I have another question from the live streaming audience. Dr. Smedley, you spoke about ge geographies of opportunity. 
how and where can I see geography of opportunity in my community? Ah, excellent. Um, you can measure the geography of opportunity, and there are a number of academic institutions and researchers who are doing this. I'd refer you to the great work of the Kirwan Institute for Race and Ethnicity at The Ohio State University, a group that really pioneered this concept called opportunity mapping. What they do is they take data from an array of different sources on, on education, for example. So they might look at school dropout, educational attainment, um, uh, the quality of education in schools. They might, they might look at the quality of housing. They might look at economic activity, jobs, the availability of capital for businesses. This all goes into an opportunity index, a way of measuring neighborhood level opportunity. So access to data becomes critically important, particularly for, for community-based folks who want to document uh, the inequities across communities. You see this reflected to some extent in our maps. We think that these life outcome, uh, the life expectancy differentials are in fact the byproduct of differences in opportunity structures across communities. So I'd refer you to the Kirwan Institute and their, their fantastic examples of opportunity mapping. In almost every uh, community in the US, if you look at, at a metropolitan area or a county or, or a jurisdiction, if you take those indicators and map opportunity on the basis of those indicators, you're gonna see dramatic differences and sadly, it too often overlaps with residential segregation and poverty concentration, and that's how folk can document the inequities that exist in their communities. I, I hope that that addressed the question. Elizabeth? Hi, Elizabeth Arnalis, Colorado Center on Law and Policy. Um, thank you for your work and for being here. Um, have you been able to do or thought about doing an overlay um, related to um, increased um, opportunities for income? For example, uh, earned income tax credit, um, increases in minimum wage, opportunities for tax credits to provide family support, and how has that affected um, sort of your view of, of the, uh, given the work that you've been doing? Boy, that, that's a great question. Uh, you've actually just given me a really nice idea. We, we've not done that. We've not uh, mapped how uh, economic policy shapes um, the opportunity, for example, for a living wage. But your point is such a good one because there are attacks on the earned in, in, income tax credit. Uh, effectively trying to raise tax rates on low-income folk, exactly the wrong thing to do when we're trying to uh, recover from the economic downturn and promote opportunities for good health for those communities. Because there's such an important relationship between income, education, and health, uh, we know that EITC is a public health intervention. Uh, a living wage is a public health uh, and a health equity strategy. Uh, so uh, following from your idea, I hope I hope we can steal your idea if that's okay. I would love to map how these policies affect different communities uh, because we see uh, these kinds of assaults uh, on uh, uh, economic structures and, and, and policies that benefit these communities uh, actually having the potential to deepen health inequities. Well, we'd love to have that conversation with you. Absolutely. <laughs> <clears throat> it's interesting, I recently uh, heard Dr. Maxine Hayes, who's the uh, uh, health director for Washington State uh, give a presentation and her comment was recognize that social policy is health policy. And I think I would add now social and economic policy is health policy. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yes. Um, you spoke about a long-term agenda and I was wondering if there's any recommendation whether we should start with local um, legislation, state legislation or national and are you aware of any clearinghouse that would contain language, bill language, mm. which would make it much easier for states to adopt policies and push those policies? 
And the second part of the question is, are you aware of any public will building interventions that have been effective to get that community support for these policy issues? Yeah. Uh, two great questions. So we think that we need uh, leadership at federal, state, and local levels. Obviously, some of the policy strategies that I was speaking about are primarily strategies that local jurisdictions can adopt in terms of land use policies, uh, the uh, incentives for grocery stores to come into a community. Uh, in terms of specific language, uh, there are some resources that are, that are available. Uh, we uh, try to help our teams with uh, uh, a, a policy and legislation that can be a model for some of this local activity. There are other groups uh, that I can refer you to, and I, I don't want to name some because I'll miss others and that will be embarrassing. Um, but uh, the short of all that is that we need federal support for local and state innovation, but we also need federal leadership. So for example, uh, right now the Prevention and Public Health Fund is under attack. Uh, and this is absolutely counter to the evidence. We know that prevention works, particularly community-based primary prevention. We're at a stage now where we're still tr trying to educate policymakers about the return on investment from community-based primary prevention. So uh, there's already legislation in the ACA that we think is important to help support. We think it needs to go further than that. Uh, but there's also innovation at the state level. My state of Maryland has passed uh, legislation just last year that establishes health empowerment zones uh, that will be uh, defined geographic spaces where there are incentives for doctors, nurses, dentists, uh, behavioral health professionals to work in these underserved communities. So vitally important. I wish they would go even further upstream, um, and I wish they would put more resources behind that. Uh, so hopefully that will happen. Uh, but we need, again, uh, federal leadership to support that as well. Public will, that's such a great question. Um, you know, obviously to support the implementation of policy, we need a strong collective public voice and an appetite for this kind of, of work. There are many organizations that are attempting to build public will, uh, the Connecticut Health Foundation, uh, others, I know that the, the trust is, has got an interest in this as well. Um, part of the challenge is that every community is different in terms of the political landscape and the leadership needed to begin to raise awareness and build support for this kind of innovation. What we've learned in Place Matters is that you've seen one community, you've seen one community, and what, what works in Jefferson County, Alabama, doesn't necessarily work in Alameda County, California. Um, differences in leadership and the political climate become critically important here, but we think that in general, uh, public will building needs to begin to build on the foundation that says health inequities concern all of us, uh, solving it requires multi-sector collaboration, and there are returns on investment uh, that will help make our community stronger, both in terms of health uh, and the economy. And then trying to tailor it to the specific kinds of political dynamics within these communities seems to be what's, uh, what's necessary. I'd refer you to the work of the Opportunity Agenda, uh, which uh, you can Google the Opportunity Agenda. They do a lot of great work on framing and messaging for equity strategies. Uh, and um, uh, their effort is part of the effort to build the public will for these kinds of, of, of policies. I would point out that there are a couple of other resources uh, to, to answer the question. So the Institute of Medicine has a specific publication on health policies that reduce uh, health disparities and promote health uh, equity. And the National uh, Council on State Legislatures uh, has a website and they keep track of state legislation by categories and one of the categories is 
it's either health disparities or health equity, I can't remember which. And the last thing I just want to make sure that we recognize is that you talked about state and uh, national level, that there are policy issues at the community level, county and city, community, that actually can have huge impact on social determinants of health and, uh, and health equity. So I never, I, I never like to lose sight of what I, 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 I begrudgingly call little P, little policy, because those policies at the local level can have huge impacts. Next question. Oh, Courtney. So I'm gonna use creative liberties and, and combine a couple of questions here that are around creating a common understanding. So um, one question from our streaming audience is, what tools can I use to increase awareness in my community to create common understanding? And then as a follow-up, we had a question on how can people or organizations work with our philanthropic community to create common understanding of root causes in order to support these people-based strategies that you spoke of? The kinds of maps that I just showed you are powerfully effective in helping people to get it that not only do we see deep health inequities in our communities, but they're also unjust and unfair. Uh, people who look at these maps like to look at their neighborhood, and they can kind of, you know, it, it becomes personal when you see where your neighborhood fares. Interesting, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has, has produced their county health rankings, which is also another way of showing uh, the geographic distribution of health. We think it's important to get down to as local a level as possible, because that's where you see the most dramatic inequities. So getting down to the level of a jurisdiction or a county, often there are data challenges, but people can work with their local uh, public health department, which often has the vital statistics that you need to produce these kinds of maps. So having the death certificates to produce the life expectancy calculations, often you can work with a, with a local health department or a university to calculate at the census track level or the zip code What's the life expectancy of the, of the neighborhoods in, in our communities, and how can we map that? So we think these maps are a powerful visual way to help people get it. Uh, on the question of uh, working with, with philanthropic organizations, boy, uh, there is such great leadership in this space now. You see it here at the Trust. You see it with many other health foundations around the country. Um, the organization Grantmakers in Health came out with a publication uh, just last year on how health foundations can advance health equity. Uh, I'm shamelessly plugging it because I wrote it, but, um, but you can go to their website and get that, uh, that uh, paper, which has a number of recommendations from leaders in the field. I, I talked to leaders in philanthropy, government, academia, and said, you know, what can health philanthropy do to advance health equity? What are the most promising strategies? They identified a number of fantastic recommendations uh, which are all in that report, and, and they're very specific to health foundations uh, to help build public and political will, to help harness data so that we uh, can show the inequities in our communities, uh, and to point to, to solutions. So, um, so excellent question, thank you. Question here. Uh, yes, working in a nonprofit, we work a lot with our communities from a hands-on grassroots level, and my question revolves around uh, basically just asking for ideas on how to influence change to take place from a policy level in regard to the various intersectionalities of housing mobility, quality education access, disappearance of food deserts, the banning of GMOs, and other harmful elements that are pernicious to communities of poverty. So uh, how do we work with our grassroots uh, organizations and leaders to point to the, m the multiple and intersecting barriers to health? Yes, and um, basically how we would 
how we would utilize our stance from a grassroots level to influence policy at the top. Yeah. Because like you said, um, this, is, this would have to take place across sectors. So exactly. I just wanted to hear some ideas about that. Exactly, that's such an important question, so thank you for raising that. Uh, it's interesting, in that paper I just referenced uh, from GIH, Grantmakers in Health, on what health foundations can do, the most powerful uh, recommendation there came from a leader in a foundation who said, you know, it's really about political power. It's really about the organizing, it's really about civic participation, participating in the, in the political process, because otherwise, too often, these communities' voices are ignored, not heard. Um, so often, the work that we do really comes down to organizing and, and political power. Now, we're not an advocacy group, and I'm not a community organizer. So again, it's easier said than done, but ultimately, it comes down to communities having accountability and a powerful voice at the table. Uh, and we found, through Place Matters, uh, that communities that never thought that they had a say in their destiny or their future, they're getting heard. Um, sometimes policymakers are slow to act, sometimes they don't act at all. But it's the process of being heard. I, I think organizing in itself is one of the most important things that we can do to advance health equity because it gives those communities a sense that they have a control over their destiny. Uh, and I think that, that the work that you do is so important in this space. We've gotta find ways to make our elected officials accountable to these very folk. Holding events in the community, when we release these reports showing the, the distribution of health, we often hold them in community centers and invite elected officials so that they can hear from community residents and see these maps so that they see exactly what the problem is uh, and so that they are, uh, so that folk in the community can get in their face, frankly, about these problems. So thank you for that. So just to, to follow up, if, if I might, um, <clears throat> I think we have one state representative. There may be one I did not recognize, but I want to acknowledge that Representative Joshi has come. Uh, this is his second uh, Health Equity Learning Series issue. And, 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 I, and I, I point you out not to pick at you, but to tell you one of the most basic and easy things to do is to activate the community to contact their legislator. Nothing I can say, I'm serious, has the power with Representative Joshi as to someone from his district calling him about an issue. And I think we gloss over that. We think we have no power, we have no influence, we have no voice. And I gotta tell you, I, you know, I spent 10 years in state government, that everything I just said is wrong. The power of the individual voice or the community voice in engaging their elected official has so much power. Uh, I, I hope that, we, that you can think about how to embrace that in your community. Uh, and coming down to the Capitol to testify in front of a committee, it's, it's scary, it's, it's almost, well, it's always done on your own time and at your own cost, and I recognize that. But it, it you know, I was a, you know, someone called me a bureaucratic physician once, which I know made my father turn over in his grave. But, but it was true, I was speaking from a different position. And the power of the people's voice in those committee rooms is so strong and so moving. I just wanna, if I seem passionate, I'm passionately trying to tell you this is a great way to engage policy. I have a question about, uh, you, were, you were talking about healthcare expansion, and I know that's largely going to involve Medicaid, um, but on the other hand, I know that some conversation involving primary care physicians, you know, the, the reimbursements for Medicaid is too low, and if, if you're just going to increase more Medicaid patients, how, 
what kind of restructuring do we need of primary care to address lower reimbursements? Absolutely. One of the big criticisms of, of the Medicaid program is that in many states, reimbursement rates are extremely low. Providers sometimes lose money providing services because of those low reimbursement rates. But in the Affordable Care Act, there is a provision that says that Medicaid reimbursement rates ultimately should become equivalent to Medicare reimbursement rates. Frankly, it's been slow to happen. Uh, there are providers who are still not getting reimbursed uh, at, at higher rates. Um, but this is part of what needs to be worked out in the kinks of the ACA. But as, you're, you're so right. Pardon me. There are many providers who are unwilling to accept Medicaid patients because of the fact that they, uh, the, the reimbursement rates are so low. It's been particularly a problem in oral health care. Um, hopefully, both the health professions programs that incentivize providers to go into and work in medically underserved communities and the increase in reimbursement rates, if they get that right, hopefully that will better distribute our healthcare resources, because right now it's a terrible maldistribution of, of healthcare resources. The wealthiest and healthiest communities have more of it, and it's not because that healthcare is there. It's because of all the other things that we've been talking about, better opportunity structures, better economy, better uh, homes, better jobs, et cetera. Um, communities that are sickest and poorest and need that healthcare the most often face geographic barriers to accessing care. So hopefully expanding uh, community health centers, incentivizing, incentivizing providers to work in those communities, and increasing the Medicaid reimbursement rate uh, ultimately is going to help. But we need to give it a little bit of time. Um, I'm very interested to see if the healthcare landscape looks different in two or three years. If we have more providers accepting Medicaid, if we have more providers in communities that desperately need that care. So that's an excellent point. That's been one of the, the challenges with the, with the program. We have another one from the, the live stream audience. How can smaller communities sound the alarm when racial and ethnic populations are, quote, too small to measure and in inequity isn't viewed as significant? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, in our research, we, we've used larger metropolitan areas because the data is there, but we can't ignore the challenges around smaller and rural communities. Uh, you know, in many cases, we can aggregate data across uh, uh, many years. We've, we've actually done that in places like Mississippi, where it's a rural community primarily. So you have to go back and, and collect data from a couple of decades to get good data on life expectancy, for example. But the questioner is absolutely right. We've got to find ways to raise awareness of the inequities in these communities. Um, data is important, but sometimes it's not always data. Sometimes it's more qualitative. Sometimes it's an anecdote. Sometimes it's a video. Uh, you know, with the, with the proliferation of social media these days and, and video on YouTube, on, uh, on uh, other kinds of feeds, this can be important in, in telling a story. Uh, and so um, there are ways to raise awareness of the challenges in rural and smaller communities where you have populations that are, uh, that are suffering from disinvestment and neglect and just need to have a little bit of help to elevate that story. So um, hopefully that that those kinds of strategies can help. I, uh, I know we could keep going, uh, and I, I'm, I'm very pleased about the level of engagement, but I want to respect people's time and try to quit on time. Um, so I'd like to start uh, wrapping up before you all leave with just another uh, thank you for uh, Dr. Smedley speaking. So. Thank you. You know, I, it was interesting watching the flow of the conversation that we go to an area of comfort for a lot of the people in the room, which is healthcare, 
and, uh, and I, we have to always recognize that good health depends on more than just health care. Uh, I think where and how we live, our work, our wages, and where we play are all important issues. So we think that by learning from our experts uh, like Dr. Smedley, we can get better in Colorado, and we hope that you consider this as another in our series of learning lessons that we have planned. Uh, on July 25th, Dr. Adawal Troutman, who's the president of the American Public Health Association, and another national and international expert on health equity will be here speaking with us as, as well. You can find information about this plus the rest of the series we have planned on our website. Um, I, I also want to point out that uh, Dr. Smedley's slides will be available on our website, and it takes us about a week or two to process and produce the video. But the video will be available for viewing asynchronously, if you will, for those who might find that useful. Now I have to ask you one more favor as you, as you think about heading out the door. We really need your feedback to make these sessions as powerful and as useful as possible. So at your seat, there's a brief survey and evaluation that if I could personally ask you to help us at the trust in filling that out and leaving it before you take off today, that will really help us tailor these sessions uh, specifically to what's going to be best for you. I also want to thank everyone who's not in the room, the, uh, the folks in the, in the uh, different settings around the state, and I really appreciate your participation today and that of Dr. Smedley. Thank you. Thank you.